The Swiss Family Robinson, Chapter 26 Treatment of Bees Staircase Training of Various Animals Manufacturing Next morning, almost before dawn, all were up and in motion. The bees had returned to their cells, and I stopped the passages with clay, leaving only a sufficient aperture for the tubes of my pipe. I then smoked as much as re- was requisite to stupefy without killing the little warlike creatures. Not having a cap with a mask, such as bee catchers usually wear, nor even gloves, this precaution was necessary. At first a humming was heard in the hollow of the tree, and a noise like a gathering tempest, which died away by degrees. All was become calm, and I withdrew my tube without the appearance of a single bee. Fritz had got up by me. We then began with a chisel and a small axe to cut out of the tree. Under the bee's hole of entrance a piece three feet square. A stock of wax and honey that we feared our vessels would be insufficient to contain it. The whole interior of the tree was lined with fine honeycombs. I cut them off with care and put them in the gourds the boys constantly supplied me with. When I had somewhat cleared the cavity, I put the upper combs in which the bees had assembled in clusters and swarms into the gourd which was to serve as a hive, and placed it on the plank I had purposely raised. I came down, bringing with me the rest of the honeycombs, with which I filled a small cask, previously well washed in the stream. Some I kept out for a treat at dinner, and had the barrel carefully covered with cloths and planks, that the bees, when attracted by the smell, might be unable to get at it. We assembled around the table, and regaled ourselves plentifully with the delicious treat. My wife then put by the remainder, and I proposed to my sons to go back to the tree, to prevent the beasts from swarming again there on being roused from their stupor, as they would not have failed to do, but for the precaution I took of passing a board at the aperture, and burning a few handfuls of tobacco on it, the smell and smoke of which drove them back whenever they attempted to return. At length they desisted, and became gradually reconciled to their new residence where their queen no doubt had settled herself. I took this opportunity to relate to my children all I had read in the interesting work of Mr. Huber of Geneva, of the queen bee, this beloved and respected mother of her subjects who take care of and guard her work for her, nourish the rising swarms, make the cells in which they are to lodge, prepare others of a different structure as well as nutriment for the young queens destined to lead forth the fresh colonies. These accounts highly entertained my youthful auditory, who almost regretted having molested the repose of a fine, peaceable kingdom that had flourished so long without interruption in the huge trunk. I now advise that all should watch during the night over the whole provision of honey obtained while the bees were torpid, who when recovered would not fail to be troublesome, and come in legions to get back to their property. And to this end we threw ourselves on our beds, in our clothes, to take an early doze. On awaking, about nightfall, we found the bees quiet in the gourd, or settled in clusters upon near branches, so we went expeditiously to business. 
The cask of honey was emptied into a kettle, except a few prime cones, which we kept for daily consumption. The remainder, mixed with a little water, was set over a gentle fire, and reduced to a liquid consistence, strained and squeezed through a bag, and afterwards poured back into the cask, which was left upright and uncovered all night to cool. In the morning the wax was entirely separated, and had risen to the surface in a compact and solid cake that was easily removed. Beneath was the purest, most beautiful, and delicate honey that could be seen. The cask was then carefully headed again, and put into cool ground near our wine vessels. This task accomplished, I mounted to revisit the hive, and found everything in order, the bees going forth in swarms, and returning loaded with wax, from which I judged they were forming fresh edifices in their new dwelling place. I had been surprised that the numbers occupying the trunk of the tree should find room in the gourd, till I perceived the clusters upon the branches, and I thence concluded a young queen was among each of them. In consequence, I procured another gourd, into which I shook them, and placed it by the former. Thus I had the satisfaction of obtaining, at an easy rate, two fine hives of bees in activity. We soon after these operations proceeded to examine the inside of the tree. I sounded it with a pole from the opening I had made, and a stone fastened to a string served us to sound the bottom, and thus to ascertain the height and depth of the cavity. To my great surprise, the pole penetrated without any resistance to the branches on which our dwelling rested, and the stone descended to the roots. The trunk, it appeared, had wholly lost its pith, and most of the wood internally. It seems that this species of tree, like the willow in our climates, receives nourishment through the bark, for it did not look decayed, and its far-extended branches were luxuriant and beautiful in the extreme. I determined to begin our construction in its capacious hollow that very day. The undertaking appeared at first beyond our powers, but intelligence, patience, time, and a firm resolution vanquished all our obstacles. We were not disposed to relax in any of these requests. I was pleased to find opportunities to keep my sons in continual action, and their minds and bodies were all the better for exertion. They grew tall and strong, and were too much engaged to regret, in ignoble leisure, any of their past enjoyments in Europe. We began to cut into the side of the tree towards the sea, a doorway equal in dimensions to the door of the captain's cabin, which we had removed with all its framework and windows. We next cleared away from the cavity all the rotten wood, and rendered the interior even and smooth, leaving sufficient thickness for cutting our resting places for the winding stairs without injuring the bark. I then fixed in the center the trunk of a tree, about twenty feet in length and a foot thick, completely stripped of its branches, in order to carry my winding staircase round it. On the outside of this trunk, and the inside of the cavity of our own tree, we formed grooves so calculated as to correspond with the distance at which the boards were to be placed to form the stairs. These were continued till I had got to the height of the trunk round which they turned. I made two more apertures at suitable distances, and thus completely lighted the whole ascent. I also effected an opening near our room that I might more conveniently finish the upper part of the staircase. A second trunk was fixed upon the first, and firmly sustained with screws and transverse beams. 
It was surrounded like the other with stairs cut slopingly, and thus we happily effected the stupendous undertaking of conducting it to the level of our bedchamber. Here I made another door directly into it. To render it more solid and agreeable, I closed the spaces between the stairs with plank. I then fastened two strong ropes, the one descended the length of the central trunk, the other along the inside of our large tree to assist in case of slipping. I fixed the sash windows taken from the captain's cabin in the apertures we had made to give light to the stairs, and I then found I could add nothing further to my design. When the whole was complete, it was so pretty, solid, and convenient that we were never tired of going up and coming down it. Our success was owing to the firm resolution adopted by all to pre preserve in patient industry and constant efforts to the end, and it employed us many weeks. I have now to relate some occurrences that took place during the construction of our staircase. A few days after the commencement of our undertaking, our brave, Flora, whelped us six young puppies, all healthy and likely to live. The number was so alarming that I was under the necessity of drowning all but a male and female to keep up the breed. A few days later, the two she-goats gave us two kids and our ooze five lambs. But lest the domestic animals should follow the example of the ass and run away from us, I tied a belt to the neck of each. We have found a sufficient number of bells in the vessel, which have been shipped for trading with the savages, it being one of the articles they most value. We could now immediately trace a deserter by the sound and bring it back to the fold. Next to the winding stairs, my chief occupation was the management of the young buffalo, whose wound in the nose was quite healed so that I could lead it at will with a cord or stick passed through the orifice, as the Kafarians do. I preferred the stick, which answered the purpose of a bit, and I resolved to break in this spirited beast for riding as well as drawing. It was already used to the shafts, and very tractable in them. But I had more trouble in inuring him to the rider and to wear a girth, having made one out of the old buffalo's hide. I formed a sort of saddle with sailcloth and tacked it to the girth. Upon this I fixed a burden, which I increased progressively. I was in def fatigable in the training of the animal, and soon brought it to carry patiently large bags of potatoes, salt, and other articles in the place of the ass. The monkey was his first rider, who struck so close to the saddle that in spite of the plunging and kicking of the buffalo, it was not thrown. Francis was then tried as the lightest of the family, but throughout his excursion I led the beast with a halter that it might not throw him off. Jack now showed some impatience to mount the animal in his turn. I next passed the stick through the buffalo's nose and tied strong pack thread at each end of it, bringing them together over the neck of the animal, and put this new-fangled bridle into the hands of the young rider, directing him how to use it. For a time the lad kept his saddle, notwithstanding the unruly gestures of the creature. At length a side-jolt threw him on the sand without his receiving much injury. Ernest, Fritz, and lastly myself got on successively with more or less. Before it was entirely separated, I repeated the fumigation, lest the stupefaction pr produced by the first smoking should have ceased, or the noise we had been just making revived the bees. As soon as I supposed them lulled again, I separated from the trunk the piece I had cut out, producing as it were the aspect of a window 
through which the inside of the tree was laid open to view, and we were filled at once with joy and astonishment on beholding the immense and wonderful work of this colony of insects. There was such effect. His trotting shook us to the very center. The rapidity of his gallop turned us giddy, and our lessons in horsemanship were reiterated many days before the animal was tamed and could be rode with either safety or pleasure. At last, however, we succeeded without any serious accident, and the strength and swiftness of our saddle buffalo were prodigious. It seemed to sport with the heaviest loads. My three eldest boys mounted it together now and then, and it ran with them with the swiftness of lightning. By continued attention, it at length became extremely docile. It was not in the least apt to start, and I really felt satisfaction in being thus enabled to make my sons expert riders, so that if they should ever have horses, they might not get on the most restive and fairy without fear. None could be compared to our young buffalo, and the ass, which I had intended to employ in the same way, was far surpassed by this new member of our family. Fritz and Jack, with my instructions, amused themselves in training the animals as horses were exercised in a riding house, and by means of the little stick through the nose, they were able to do what they pleased with him. In the midst of all this, Fritz did not neglect his eagle. He daily shot some small birds which he gave it to eat, placing them sometimes between the buffalo's horns, sometimes on the back of one of the hands, or of the flamingo, or on a shelf, or at the end of a stick, in order to teach it to pounce like a falcon upon other birds. He taught it to perch on his wrist, whenever he called or whistled to it, but some time elapsed before he could trust it to soar without securing its return by a long string, apprehended in its bold and wild nature, would prompt it to take a distant and farewell flight from us. Our whole company, including even the inert Ernest, was infected with the passion of becoming instructors. Ernest tried his talents in this way with his monkey, who seldom failed to furnish him with work. It was no poor specimen of the ludicrous to see the lad. He, would, he whose movements were habitually slow and studied, now constrained to skip and jump and play a thousand antics with his pupil during training hours, and throughout, against the grain, carrying forward the lesson the grotesque mimic was condemned to learn of very small loads, climbing the coca trees, and to fetch and bring the nuts. He and Jack made a little hamper of rushes, very light. They put three straps to it, two of which passed under the fore, and one between the hind legs of the animal, and were then fastened to a belt in front. Interstices, which on drying produced a close adhesion between the leather and the stocking sole. I next proceeded to smear the hole with a coat of resin of a tolerable thickness, and as soon as this layer was dried on, I put on another, and so on until I had applied a sufficiency with my brush. After this, I emptied the sand, drew out the stocking, removed the hardened clay, shook off the dust, and thus obtained a pair of seamless boots as finished as if made by the best English workman, being pliant, warm, soft, smooth, and completely waterproof. I hung them up directly that they might dry without shrinking. They fitted uncommonly well, and my four lads were so highly pleased with their appearance that they skipped about with joy as they asked me to make each of them a pair. I refrained from any promise because I wished to ascertain their strength previously and to compare them with boots made of mare and buffalo leather. 
Of these, I at once began a pair for Fritz, with a piece of the slaughtered buffalo's skin. They gave far more trouble than those manufactured with a cotton chalk, which I used to cover the seams and render them less pervious to water. The work turned out very imperfect and so inferior to my incomparable boots that Fritz wore them reluctantly, and the more so as his brother shouted with laughter at the difficulty he had to run in them. We had also been engaged in the construction of our fountain, which afforded a perpetual source of pleasure to my wife and, indeed, to all of us. In the upper part of the stream we built with stakes and stones a kind of dam that raised the water sufficiently to convey it into the palm tree troughs, and afterwards by means of a gentle slope to glide on contiguous to our habitation, where it fell into the tortoise-shell basin, which we had elevated on stones to a certain height for our convenience and it was so contrived that the redundant water passed off through a cane pipe fitted to it. I placed two sticks athwart each other for the gourds that served as pails to rest on, and we thus produced close to our boat an agreeable fountain, delighting with its reel, and supplying us with a pure crystal fluid such as we frequently could not get when we drew out water from the bed of the river, which was often encumbered with the leaves and earth fallen into it or rendered turbid by our water fowls. The only inconvenience was that the water flowing in this open state through the narrow channels in a slender stream was heated and not refreshing when it reached us. I resolved to obviate this inconvenience at my future leisure by employing, instead of the uncovered conduits, large bamboo canes fixed deep enough in the ground to keep the water cool. In waiting the execution of this design, we felt pleasure in the new acquisition, and Fritz, who had suggested the, the notion, received his tribute of praise from all. To keep the hamper steady on the back of the mischievous Urkin. This apparatus was at first intolerable to poor Nips. He gnashed his teeth, rolled on the ground, jumped like a mad creature, and did everything to get rid of it, but in all in vain, for education was the standing order, and he soon found that he must submit. The hamper was left on day and night. Its sole food was what was thrown into it, and in a short time Pug was so much accustomed to the burden that he began to spit and growl whenever we attempted to take it off, and everything given to the creature to hold was instantly thrown into it. Nips became at length a useful member of our society, but he would only obey Ernest, whom he at once loved and feared, thus affording a proof of at least one of the great ends of all instruction. These different occupations filled up several hours of the day, when after working at our stairs we assembled in the evening round our best of friends, the good mother, to rest ourselves, and forming a little circle, every individual of which was affectionate and cheerful, it was her turn to give us some agreeable and less fatiguing occupation in the domestic concerns of Falcon Stream, such as improving our candle manufactory by blending the berry and the beeswax and employing the reed molds invented by Jack. But having found some difficulty in taking out the candles when cold, I adopted the plan of dividing the molds, cleaning the inside, and rubbing it over with a little butter to prevent the wax from adhering to it, then to rejoin both halves with a band that could be loosened at pleasure to facilitate the extraction of the tapers. The wicks gave us most trouble, as we had no cotton. We tried with moderate success the fibrous threads of the carota and those of the agava, or flamewood, but each had the inconvenience of becoming a sort of coal or cinder. 
The production which gave us the most satisfaction was the pith of a species of elder, but it did not, however, lessen our desire to discover the only appropriate ingredient, the cotton tree. We now began to think of manufacturing our impenetrable boots without seams of a katochchawak or elastic gum. I began with a pair for myself, and I encouraged my children to afford a specimen of their industry by trying to form some flasks and cups that could not break. They began by making some clay molds, which they covered with layers of gum agreeable to the instructions I had given them. In the meanwhile, I filled a pair of stockings with sand and covered them with a layer of clay, which I first dried in the shade and afterwards in the sun. I then took a sole of buffalo leather, well beaten and studded, round with tacks, which served me to fix it under the foot of the stocking. After this, I poured the liquid gum into all the... Ent- 